Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time in the Word, for our chance to be together in a dry building, uh, one that is filled with the love and the joy of the Spirit as we see in the room. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness that you've shown to this small church for so long. Thank you, Father, for the many men and women who have come through this building over the last several decades and have served you with their whole hearts and continue to do so today, serving in so many different ways, Father. It's so clearly evident that you call us to service because in serving you, Father, we grow and we learn and we do things in new and better ways. And, and that's why it's so important, Father, that we call, uh, answer that call and that we serve you when you ask us. And I thank you, Father, that we are, we're small. I thank you, Father, that we're so dependent on people. I, I thank you, Father, that we don't just have all the money in the world and, and that we don't just hire a bunch of people to do all the work that needs to be done. I know that would be easy. I know some places do that. I know in our case, Father, we're blessed not to. Because as we serve, we grow. And I thank you, Father, for that opportunity. And as we turn now in concern for the word ahead of us here in the study of our scripture this morning, Father, in Judges chapter 20, I'm also mindful, Father, of the fact that this book is a difficult one. There's so much in here, Lord, that we'd rather just flip past and look for better things. And there are better things, Father. You've given us the word to show us all of what you will be doing for those whom you love. But, Father, you've also given us these, these moments, the, the moments like the one in Book of Judges this morning that help us remember what it is we've been saved from. For, Father, how meaningful would grace be if we didn't understand what the alternative was? So we thank you, Father, for reminding us that we need you and we need your Son. Thank you for that this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we approach the end of our study and as we find the circumstances in Israel and growing increasingly dire, I assume you are probably starting to question whether you want to keep listening. Or maybe you were already for other reasons, but uh, probably because of the content of what we saw, particularly last week, right? Was I the only one that thought last week's passage read more like an episode of The Walking Dead than Scripture or the Game of Thrones or something? It was rape and murder and dismemberment and all kinds of gruesome stuff, right? Thankfully, that's behind us in the text. And I don't blame you if it's a little squeamish to sit through it. And as you turn to Scripture, you typically turn there because you want to be encouraged, right? You want to read about happy things and beautiful things and wonderful things. And it's there. You know, our Scriptures do inspire us. They do remind us of God's love and goodness. But then every now and then, you do come across stories like this. And we wince, or we think, that doesn't sound like God. Why would that even be in the Bible? And it's only natural. If that's you this morning, or last week particularly, I want to remind you, the story's not over yet. And I'm not talking about the story of Judges, although that's true too. I'm speaking about the story of God's redemptive plan. That is, His plan to deal with the endless downward spiral of sin among His people. That plan hasn't fully played out yet, so you can't judge it yet, based on where we stopped last week. Because the story is taking us to something very specific. It's showing us first that the human heart is desperately wicked and without hope in this world. That's a fundamental truth of Scripture. No one's born good. There's no one, no matter how nice they seem to be on the outside, who escapes this corruption that we're born with on the inside. Some are just better at hiding it than others. Or maybe just better at hiding it from you. If you could talk to their spouse or their parents or their best friend, you might learn something you didn't know. Something you really don't want to know. So when men and women live without restraint in any form, 
Sin takes over. And few books of Scripture demonstrate that truth better than the one we're studying, the book of Judges. So even as we've studied this book and it's taking you maybe to the limits of your patience, it's also doing something very constructive in your heart. It's reminding you of the need for a Savior, of why there was the need for Jesus to die on a cross for you and I. Because God loved His people so much, He was willing to take that penalty, a very cruel one, in your place, because that was the only hope. So consider the ugliness of this time, but let that truth remind you of something that you may have overlooked. And that is the ugliness of your own sin. It's striking to me how often we look at stories like the one we're studying in Judges and we wonder, how can anyone do anything so terrible while at the same time minimizing the things of our own life which from God's point of view are in their own way equally terrible? How many sins does it take to exclude you from fellowship with God in eternity? Just one. And you did that one a long time ago. And all the other things you've done, all the things you can recount in your mind, the things that so many of us don't even know about and frankly don't want to know about are things that separate you from the love of God that God detests now have you dismembered a body have you raped someone God forbid but don't create in your mind a pecking order in which you can in a self-satisfied way see yourself as better than the people you're studying today in the book of Judges and therefore more worthy of the glory God has prepared for you or in some way more deserving of the grace that He extended you. If that's a heart that comes into this room, then let the book of Judges dispel that for you today because no one is better than another on the question of who can go to heaven. Our Redeemer is powerful enough to cleanse all of us of all unrighteousness, for we need that. And when we eventually finish this book and get into the story of Ruth, which, as I said, will be our follow-on, we'll finally get to see the real solution presented in the form of this story, a love story, really, of a man and a woman and the family that gets united. But in it is the picture of Christ and what He's done for us. So, as the saying goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. So, let's return to the darkness for a little longer. As we move to the end of this book, into the dawn of Ruth, we stopped last week at the end of chapter 19, after the wife of a Levite, as I said, had been raped and left for dead by the mob in that Benjamite town. And then the husband, as you remember, he responded by sending his wife's body parts to the twelve tribes in that gruesome, disturbing message. And he did so, as we studied, so that he could trigger a response to create a desire for revenge in the rest of the tribes of Israel against the Benjamites. And then at the very end of chapter 19 last week, we saw the people responding as expected. So collectively, the nation has now cried out that something should be done. And this is a significant moment in the time of Judges. For at least one moment now, for all that we've studied in the last 20 chapters, at least for one moment, the people of Israel have come together in a desire to contend with the sin amongst them. Do you see that? A little bright light there. Not a very much. Not going to last very long. But there's a moment here where the people finally wake up to the fact that things can't keep going the way they're going. And predictably, they respond to this sin by acting in what will ultimately be even greater sin. But they start with a good motive. And they start here with the assembling of the people to go to war against their brothers, which takes us into chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzvah. The chiefs of all the people, even all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone to Mitzvah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? 
So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gebeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. So let's look at what the nation does now in response to the call to arms. Their response to this atrocity, I think, is somewhat reminiscent of how our own nation responded to the disaster of September 11, 2001. And by that I mean the people, it says, became of one mind that something must be done. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, of people who were resisting the call to arms that followed in the months immediately after that disaster. There was that clarity moment when everyone says, we can't let this stand. Something has to be done. And in the process, what you see following shows glimpses of righteousness. Men seeking for justice. Even at one point in a moment, you'll see them inquiring of God for direction on how they should proceed. But friends, this is the time of judges. So, you know, we have to keep that in the back of our mind. So in the time of judges, their actions still remain untethered from the law of God. Or from the heart of God, for that matter. So consequently, their actions will not lead to justice, though that seems to be their interest. Samuel says the men from, it says, from Dan to Beersheba and Gilead joined together. And they created an army of about 400,000 men. And as you remember a few chapters earlier, Dan is the tribe that migrated from where they were supposed to be up north. And they're in the very far northern reaches of Israel by this point. Beersheba is the southernmost town in Judah. While Gilead is the eastern border of the land of Israel. Therefore, this phrase, from Dan to Beersheba and to Gilead is a phrase that means the whole nation, from north to south to the edges of the land in the east. And of course, they're bordered on the west by the Philistine territory. In fact, this phrase became a common saying in Israel during the time of the monarchy, which will follow later, as a way of describing a unified Israel. When you wanted to say unified Israel, you would say this phrase. So at this assembly, you have the chiefs of the tribes holding a convocation in Mitzpah, which is a town just inside the border in the territory of the Benjamites, just a few miles north of Gilbeah. So they're actually moved into the territory of Benjamin to hold this convocation. Now, this meeting is a trial. You need to see it that way. It's a trial in which they're going to determine the facts and the appropriate response for what's been charged. But notice, the troops have already been gathered. You get a sense that they know where this is going before they've even finished the process of adjudicating what took place. And in fact, in verse 3, you notice it says, we're told that the Benjamites are aware of the meeting. The people of Israel gave Benjamin notice to attend this trial. They expected the leaders of Benjamin to show up to make an appearance and give defense against the accusations being made against them. But it also appears here that the Benjamites ignored the summons. They made no effort to attend. So the convocation begins with a testimony from the Levite who cut up his wife now, the Levite here is the star witness. He's pretty much the only witness. And they ask him, just tell us what happened. And in this case, he elects not to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He gives a version of it, but he's very selective in his memory. In the broad strokes, he relates the facts correctly. He, he tells them, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But, when you look at what he says, he overlooks some key details, I would think intentionally so, in order to ensure that the result of the trial goes the way he wants. For example, in verse 5, he says that the men of Benjamin wished to kill him, but killed his wife instead. 
Alright, so that's true, at least as far as it goes, but he left out a part. He left out the part where he threw his bride to the crown. Now, obviously the Levite's omission doesn't lessen the sin of the men of Gebeah, but you have to wonder if the crowd would have been so ready to go to war against the Benjamites if they had known the whole story. If that part was in there, would they have felt the same way about attacking the city? Or might they have seen this as a kind of mixed bag of sin, one from him and some from him and some from them? And then furthermore, the Levite testifies that he received his bride dead, and so he cut her up to send her around Israel. Once again, he paints a picture of himself here pretty favorably. I mean, was she truly dead when he cut her up? We don't know. Maybe. But even still, let's assume she was. His response is equally troubling, right? He just jumps over that part. He piously says he did this in response to this lewd and disgraceful act. Well, what do we think about his act? If, if what they did was lewd and disgraceful, what do we think about him? He doesn't say anything. Again, would this national response have resulted if he had merely taken his wife's dead body in whole to one of the judges, who I might add were on duty during this time, and said, would you bring justice for this offense? You see, the point is, his selective memory of the event illustrates how everyone judged sin according to a preferred perspective. He recognized the sin of the mob in Gilbeah. I mean, he understood they were doing wrong, but he conveniently overlooks his own contributions to the situation, and he's not following the law in any of this as he seeks justice. What the law would have required is that he go through the appointed representatives God has put on the earth for that purpose, make his case, and let the law do as it's intended against the people who have, who have disobeyed it. But he hasn't done any of that. He hasn't appealed to the representatives of God. Instead, he's acting as a vigilante, And I think when you look at the details of what he's saying and all that he's done leading up to this moment, it's clear that he is seeking justice in his own way and manipulating everybody in the process to get there. As a result, one man, if you trace it all to him in that sense, one man's decision will result in the bloodshed of over 65,000 Jews who are going to die as a result of what comes from this. Now, I realize it's not all him. We certainly see a chain of events. But it seems to center on him on his sin. And so as he finishes his testimony, the Levite once again calls for action. Notice verse 7, he says, Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. He keeps pressing them. In fact, you could retranslate in effect what he says to say it this way. Don't you see what must be done in the face of this offense? He's challenging them to do something the way he thinks it should be done. Manipulating the hearts and minds of these people, acting out of revenge. And friends, revenge is always a sinful desire. That is different than the desire to see justice. There is a healthy, godly feeling of desiring righteousness, desiring justice. But revenge is not the same. And the difference is the actor. When the government, when the law, when those appointed justly act to carry out some penalty for sin, that is justice, that is appropriate. When our government, for example, decides that under the rules of law someone must die for their sin, for their crime, that's just because it's following the process God has ordained through government. On the other hand, when you and I take that matter into our own hands and decide that someone who has done something to us deserves to die and we kill them, that's called murder. That's revenge and it's not godly. It's the opposite. Israel's own law taught this to the people. It taught them that they are to be patient in the face of an injustice. They are to rely on the Lord for protection in the face of their enemies. I'll read you a couple of quick examples. Deuteronomy 32, 
35 and 36, he says, Vengeance is mine, and retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate His people, and will have compassion on His servants, when He sees that their strength is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. And Proverbs teaches Israel not to act in this way against one another. In Proverbs 24, verses 28 and 29, the Lord says, Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. You know, when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People often turn that and use it at times as an indictment of the truth or the reliability of the Bible because they say, well, if Jesus said you can't do that, but the Old Testament says you can do that, then obviously there's a contradiction. But you see here in Proverbs, for example, Proverbs making very much the same case Jesus did. We're not to seek retribution against our neighbor for their sin against us. And with regard to the eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth quote, That was actually a limit on sin. It wasn't intended to endorse doing any such thing. You're not supposed to take someone's eye because they hurt you. The law was saying, if you act in retribution, which you shouldn't, you can never do more than what the person did to you. And it uses that idea of an eye for an eye to illustrate what that would look like. In other words, sometimes Scripture authenticates sin by regulating it, but that's not the same thing as endorsing it. Moses gave the opportunity for divorce in the sense that he made a a way possible for women to be released from a marriage that the husband has already abandoned and seek marriage again for their own sake so they wouldn't starve to death without a provider. That's not the same thing as saying he wanted divorce. It's simply an accommodation for sin. Similarly, that's what Jesus was talking about. So while this man was wronged, his response is equally wrong. And now what he does is lead the leaders themselves into another wrong response as well. Verse 8. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Galbaia. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people. That when they come to Gebeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. So here's the response the leaders propose in verse 8. They say, we are going to go up and solve this now. It sounds very brave, very manly. Let's go get those guys. But it's not particularly godly. And here's why. No one said, let's go home and pray about this. That just takes all the fire out of the belly, doesn't it? When you get them all worked up and everybody's ready to run into battle and if somebody says, oh, sorry, can we go home and pray first? It kills the moment. If by that I mean your moment of wanting revenge, of letting your stirred up passion drive you into battle, right? No one here, it appears, really cares what the Lord thinks. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. That hasn't changed. They want to do it while their passions are inflamed. That's the sense of verse 8. They're saying, none of us will go to our tent. None of us will get the chance to leave this moment. You know how this works in human culture, right? In human nature. If I put a bunch of people in one place at the same time and I have them all work up in the same way to some emotional state, the last thing I want is to see that diffused. Okay, go back home and ask your wives. I'll never see you again. Because the women will have better sense and they'll say, what's wrong with you? Snap out of it. (laughs) Somewhat like that. But the point is, these guys, the leaders, are clearly intent on striking while the iron's hot and the iron's in their hearts. No one makes good decision. 
when acting in the heat of the moment. And that's what you see here. The Lord commanded His people in the law, and likewise, by the way, He commands the church in the New Testament, not to act this way in the face of a wrong. Not to work up to a fervor and then take that as your opportunity to fix the problem. He says instead, leave room for the wrath of God. You're supposed to respect God's purposes in everything that transpires in your life. So in other words, if you're concerned with following Him, then when unpleasant things enter into your life, and this would be maybe an example of that, something very unpleasant entered into Israel's life, you trust Him with the outcome of that situation. You don't step in by your own hand to satisfy your own sinful desires for revenge or for retribution. Instead, He says, leave room. I love that phrase. Step back, leave room. Don't get in the way of God. Which means don't add your sinful response on top of the sin that you're so worried about correcting. These people are not working for justice. I think that's what I'm working very hard this morning to show you. Is On the surface, it sounds right, but it's much closer to vigilante mob justice than it is anything truly just. Even though the crime that is driving it is a bad thing. The response is also bad. They are feeding their fleshly desire. They're not concerned with God's will. And friends, that's just typical for the whole age of judges. This is very typical for how they worked. So in preparation for the battle, they come up with this method of proportionally numbering the tribes, basically 10%, to support the army in battle. Now these aren't the people who are actually going into battle. These are the ones who are going to support. They're the the rear ranks. They're going to provide food, logistical support for the 400,000 that have already been assembled. And they're taking these measures, it says here, in a united fashion for the concept of a long battle. They're really digging in for what might be a long engagement. And no one here is asked, let's go to Samuel, let's see what he would say. They're just pressing onward. And it's amazing to me they're willing to devote so much to this task, so much of their resources, so much of their people. They apportion men, it says here, at a rate of 10%. I think that's an allusion to the, the law of tithing. I think they're operating with this kind of warped sense of the law where they're trying to find some root for their actions and they're just pulling stuff out of wherever. 10% seems like the right number. That's what God would want us to do, 10%. In other words, the people who are supposed to give their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength to serving God have instead turned their devotion and energy to the pursuit of revenge for one act of sin. I want you to take note of how often you see the phrase, as one man. Look, verse 1, verse 8, verse 11. That phrase is there and it stands out because it's so unusual. Isn't this like the antithesis of judges? They have not acted in unison about anything to this point in the book. But here, for some reason, you have it. This anomaly in the age of men doing what is right in their own eyes is now everyone on the same page. So as you move ahead in the next scene, I want you to keep in mind that a people who are never united in anything that God has commanded them to do are now finally united in something they want to do. So here's the irony of ironies. They're still doing what is right in their own eyes. They just all happen to pick the same thing right now. But it's not God's thing. Now as their union leads them to this near catastrophe, leading them to almost decimate one of their tribes, I want you to ironically watch how a people living in sin still find ways to tell themselves they're working with God. This is a lesson about how the sin of men, unrestrained by submission to God's will, can do more harm than good and yet seem justified in the hearts of those who do it. So after the convocation, the leaders of the tribes enter into the territory of the Benjamites. They demand to have the men of Gilbeah who killed the women brought to them for judgment to be put to death. Verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? 
Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gilbeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gilbeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gilbeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. This course that we're seeing taken here isn't wrong in itself. In other words, the fact that Israel wants to see justice done and wants to find the bad guys and put them to death, again, in the broad strokes, that's fine. That's what the law would require, in fact. And Benjamin, I should add, should have turned them over. They should not have harbored these criminals. But the justice should have been conducted by judges according to the law. This is mob justice, so it's not good justice. Okay? Instead, what the men of Benjamin do is they reject the authority of the others in the tribes of Israel, and they go to war, they prepare for war. Now, you probably can't find a better example of men doing what is right in their own eyes than this moment right now in the tribe of Benjamin. On what basis could the Benjamites possibly have for refusing the request to deliver these men up for justice. They don't seem to deny the charge. There's no evidence that they contend that this never happened. They just don't want to give them up. It appears they merely want to protect their pride and their independence as a tribe among the others. In other words, you don't have to tell us what to do. We do whatever we want. And just the fact that you're telling us is enough reason for us not to want to do it. You can't get a better capsulizing of what people look like when they do what is right in their own eyes. They are harboring sinners of the worst kind amongst them to no benefit of their own, but they're willing to do it. Why? Because they just don't want to be told what to do. There in a nutshell is the heart of men. Notice the author emphasizes in verse 13 that the Benjamites wouldn't listen to the voice of their brothers. These are their brothers. They chose to see their fellow tribes as adversaries rather than as brothers. And so they act defensively. That's just such a shock, isn't it? I mean, the extent to which people will stand up to defend evil, it's actually a good measure, a good thermometer for the degree of moral decay within a community. Test this in your own experience. Paul says that the society of the last days, that is to say the days we live in now, is a society that hates good. He says this in 2 Timothy. And it's a society that celebrates evil. And you can certainly see the same tendency in our culture today, can't you, to, to side with those who do the wrong thing and protecting those evildoers, while at the same time going against those who have the desire for justice or the right thing. We celebrate the bad boys and the bad girls. We make excuses for people who can't seem to do what's right. And then those who do what's right have to pay the taxes to help those who have done what's wrong. In other words, it's completely flipped. That would tell you that the evil that's infecting the Benjamites is still with us today. So Benjamin assembles a, a large army. Now, you might think, as you're thinking about where this is headed, you might assume that Benjamin has no chance here, right? One tribe against 12, 400,000 against 26,000, right? It should be a wipeout. But in fact, it's not quite that way because the tribe of Benjamin was known for one thing more than any other, the skill of their warriors. And that's out of the prophetic blessing that Jacob gave to Benjamin back in Genesis. In Genesis 49:27, when he spoke to each son that he had and gave a blessing, he said this to Benjamin. He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. 
So prophetically, this tribe was going to be a tribe that produced great warriors. Saul came from this tribe, for example. So this battle is not quite as one-sided as you might expect. And in fact, we're told here that from the town of Gilbea, there are 700 men who were supplied with special capabilities. These guys are literally the special forces of their day. These are the Navy SEALs of their day. These men are especially skilled in the use of the sling. Now, if you were studying the First Samuel study online, perhaps you would have already heard this. We talked about it with David. But a sling in this day is not the child's toy that you think it is today. It's not the little rubber and plastic thing that can fling a little pellet a few feet or you know, maybe sting somebody if it hits you hard enough. Now, this is something that was very deadly. It was a pouch of leather. On the corners of the pouch, you would have cords tied, long cords tied to the pouch. And this pouch is large enough it could hold a stone maybe upwards of a pound. It's a lot of weight. Probably like a baseball to get a pound out of that, maybe roughly. And you could put this thing in the pouch, take the cords, and start slinging it around over your head like this at high speed. And with skill and practice, you could learn to release those cords in such a way that the pouch would open at just the right moment. And it's been shown today, even among those who have continued this practice today, that you can hit a target with great accuracy with a one-pound projectile going upwards of 90 miles an hour. So it's like throwing a major league fastball and hitting you squarely in the head. And, by the way, a baseball softer than a stone. So you would do great damage. It says here that these guys could hit a hair with them. All right? And I don't think it's meant as an exaggeration. I think it's meant to say these were as accurate as you could be. So this is a deadly weapon. This is why shepherds could do their job. Young boys in the field could be successful in the work they did in defending the sheep because they would keep two pouches on them. One of those pouches had their food or sustenance. The other pouch had a bunch of stones. And a wolf, a thief, anyone who approached the flock would be get pelted by one-pound stones flying out of it 90 miles an hour. That's more than enough incentive to go away. So these men are skilled in this technique, we're told. So again, 700 guys doing this with art can be particularly dangerous. And then on top of that, curiously, they're all left-handed. Now you may remember our second judge, Ehud. Remember he was the left-handed Benjamite, also a Benjamite? In fact, this story might have been set in about the same period of general history in the time of Judges as the one of Ehud. Maybe he's one of the 700. Maybe he had just an experience in that group. I'm just guessing, but there is a connection there. When we studied back in that earlier point in the book, we learned that Ehud may have fought left-handed because he lacked the use of his right hand, perhaps. The point back then was his left-handedness, which is generally seen to be a deficit in the culture, a weakness in the culture, was intentional because it reflected God's willingness to do great things through weakness, through men who were not otherwise seen as strong. That was our conclusion in Ehud's case. But in this case, it's telling a different story than weakness. Here you have 700 skilled, powerful men, not weaklings by anybody's assessment. And the fact that all 700 are left-handed tells us that it's by design. That was a requirement to get into the group, to be left-handed, hand-picked for the special forces. So this is a special unit that the Benjamites have assembled and they've trained them in such a way as to gain a tactical advantage. Like a baseball team that will field a left-handed pitcher against certain batters because it works to the advantage of the team pitching. Well, similarly, by operating in unison with this unusual convention, this left-handed style, this unit probably had a tactical advantage. They were coming at a direction you didn't expect. If they had to pull out their weapon, they were fighting against you in a way that your shielding wasn't prepared in the same way it would be for a right-handed fighter. One guy alone, left-handed, disadvantage. 700 trained guys with the same uniqueness, that can become a tactical advantage. 
So symbolically, though, there's something more going on here. This distinction is a commentary on the spiritual nature, the spiritual heart of this tribe of Benjamin. Because the name Benjamin, as we studied last time when we looked at Ehud, it means son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. Remember, Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son. And so that name, being of the right hand of the father, reflects being close to the father's authority and honor, being cherished, being the most honored in the family. And yet now you look, you have Benjamin, who as a tribe couldn't be farther from God's heart in the matter before them, right? And so the evil in their hearts is symbolized by the fact that the strongest among them are all left-handed sons of the right hand. They're all on the opposite side, so to speak, symbolically, of where God had said they would be. The tribe of the sons of the right hand is placing all their trust in men who are left-handed. So if you haven't got the picture that God is presenting to us, it's clear now. He says, the people of God have gone their own way, and the fact that they're united in their sin doesn't improve matters. This is a good thing to remember as a Christian. Popular opinion is not a good measure of righteousness. The fact that you are on the side everyone else is on is usually a really bad thing if you're a Christian. And by everyone, I mean everyone outside the church. I mean of the world. And the general rule that I use is, when the world says go left, right is probably the right answer. On anything. Parenting, money, sex, movies, it doesn't matter. What they say is good, reverse it, and you're probably a lot closer to the truth. In almost every case. So that you have this group of people, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes in this case, united in one way to go do one thing. They're all wrong in what they're doing, at least in the way they're doing it. And then on the flip side, you have the tribe of Benjamin, right-handed men, fighting with their left hand, so to speak. That is to say, they're on the wrong side of their issue. There's no winners what I keep reminding you as we study this book. There are no good guys in this book. Not ultimately. Verse 17, Then the men of Israel besides Benjamin were numbered. 400,000 men who draw the sword. All of these were men of war. Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Ah, so this is an interesting little addition to the story. Suddenly God appears again and They're listening to him, or so it would seem. Doesn't that start to reverse our perspective? Doesn't it suggest that maybe they're doing the right thing after all? Well, hold that thought. The tabernacle of the Lord, which is where they go here, was in Bethel in these days. And so that's why they go there. They go to to approach the Lord for direction and blessing, or so it seems. And again, this sounds like a really encouraging development. And certainly, that's what we'd like to think. You might be saying to yourself, well, see, finally Israel has sort of taken the step necessary to go after the Lord's counsel, and, and, and finally they're starting to think about His will. Okay, well, go a little deeper with me first. The first thing you notice is that the name for God, in verse 18, in Hebrew, it's not the personal name for the Lord. And if you have an English Bible like mine, whenever the personal name of God is provided, it's not God, it's LORD in all caps. Do some of your Bibles do that? Whenever you see God's personal name, and when I say his personal name, we don't know it necessarily as it was spoken in his day, but it's approximated today by Yahweh. And so when the Hebrew is using the word Yahweh, that is the personal name of God, we translate it Lord in all caps. But when they just use the ordinary, everyday word for God, that is like pagan gods, your God, my God, things like that, they use Elohim. Because it's just a generic word for God. And that's what you see used here in verse 18. It says, they go to God, not to Yahweh. 
seeking advice. So they are going to inquire, but they aren't approaching him on the basis of a personal knowledge of him. The people of Israel are far from God in a personal sense at this point. They don't even know how to address him personally anymore. That would be the indication. He has become like a pagan god to them. They just know that we're supposed to go to that place. That's where the building is. That's where the guys with the funny outfits are. They tell us what God says. Let's go there. And they approach him. And it seems that they approach him for advice. But friends, notice what they approach him for specifically. They don't ask, should we go? They don't ask, is it going to be victorious if we go? Is this the right thing to do? No, none of that. They say, we're going into battle. Which tribe goes first, please? Now, why do you want to know that? Put yourself in the ranks of one of these armed groups of men coming out of one of the tribes. And we're talking about going into a battle in which it was hand-to-hand combat, guys. And when you go into battle, where's the worst place to be? In the front. And so when it comes time to decide who gets to be in the front, do you think there's some disagreement about that? Maybe people are questioning, well, why aren't you the guy in the front? Why do I have to be the guy in the front? I tell you what, let's ask the God. The God will tell us who has to stand in the front. It's that motivation. I, I want you to see it clearly because there's a far cry from that and truly approaching God with a heart that desires to know His will and serve Him in righteousness. This is not what's going on right now. And the Lord, though, interestingly, does answer them. And I have to assume that the answer would have come through the Urim and Thummim that the high priest would have had at that place and might have thrown to find the answer. I'm assuming that's how it was divined. And he comes back with the answer, Judah will go up first. Now, this is no coincidence. This will be a very hard test for your memory, but do you remember how the book of Judges began? Literally, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. In the very beginning... Judah is leading Israel into battle under Joshua. That's where we started this book. And the Lord directed in those first verses that it would be Judah who would enter the battle first against the Canaanites. But back in chapter 1, verse 1, the people, it says very specifically, went before Yahweh and inquired of Yahweh who should go into the battle first. Here, pointedly, they're going before Elohim. Difference, big difference in the text. In both cases, the answer was the same. Judah goes first. And here's why. The connection between the beginning of the book and the end now is supposed to catch your attention so that you can see how far the nation has slid into apostasy. They used to approach the Lord by His name, seeking to do His will. Now they approach Him without even knowing His name so that they can get a blessing on doing their own will. They used to fight the enemies of Israel. Now they're fighting each other. It's a stark contrast. Both cases, Judah is key, though. In both cases, Judah is at the center. The mention of Judah is leading us to see that Israel needs to look forward to something to ultimately solve this problem. Where does Judah take you? Where does your mind go when you consider the prominence of the tribe of Judah? Judah going up first to fight the battles of Israel. Symbolically, you have to think of the Messiah coming out of Judah, who will fight ultimately the battle of sin for Israel. One day, Judah will lead his people into righteousness. One day, Jesus will come. That's the answer to this story. That's what that detail is leading us to. So as we end there today, keep in mind, you've got a group of people who seem very united on the outside, but they're doing only what they care to do on the inside. They seem to approach a God that they don't know, asking questions that don't matter, seeking to do only what they want to do anyway. It's funny how men and women can take what looks very righteous and pious and still use it in manipulation for their own sin. Keep an eye out for that tendency amongst us because even the best of us can fall prey to that once in a while. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for that reminder and for the chance to see that you still work amongst your people, prophetically speaking to them about what would come one day, even though they were oblivious, oblivious to it in the moment. 
I have to suspect, Father, we're somewhat like that ourselves from time to time. You will speak to us in many ways, principally through your word, for where you want us to go and how you want us to serve you. And perhaps, Father, we're listening, but perhaps we're not. But we're still your children by faith. And thank you, Father, that no matter of sin in our life will separate us from you. But we don't want that sin to be there anyway, Father. So please, Lord, let us take as we learned today from the book of Judges how we're to serve you in the wholeness of our heart, not merely asking you to endorse what we choose to do in our own, our own heart, our own ways. And Father, turn us back to you wherever that's needed. And for those of us, Father, or in those days of our lives when we're serving you with our whole heart and we're thinking more about you and following you, I pray, Father, you would uh, just encourage us along that path, show us how it is leading to good things in our life and into others' lives and pleasing you. Bless us with some manner of encouragement, Father, so that we would find more reason to continue. We thank you, Father, for our time of study. Send us out of here safely. Keep the rains away, Father, some, just enough that they don't cause any damage this week, Father. Just let us enjoy, their, do what they, enjoy what they do for the land, but not take too much uh, away from us, Father. And bring us back here in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.